The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the chance to get together. Thank you so much for the chance to worship freely. We give you um, the, uh, the praise and the glory and the honor. And we ask that your blessing would be on tonight. Lord, I know that people are here from all different walks of life. And that there are people here with a lot of different energy levels. That there are some people here right now that are tired. And they are here anyway. And I pray you'll bless them for that. I pray you'll bless their faithfulness in in showing up. And uh, you know it's my belief, God, that there's not one single person here that is here by accident, that you have a divine appointment with them right now. And so I do pray that um, through your word tonight, through our, through our uh, time together, that they will have that sense that you tapped their heart and said, you are my beloved child and you are of my primary importance and my interest and I want something for your life. I pray tonight that uh, people will walk out of here with a sense of having met, not just with each other, but with you, because you know that that is the longing of our hearts at its deepest level. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Dave. I'm one of the people that gets the chance to come and um, speak sometimes. I was a pastor for six years, uh, working with college students in the uh, Midwest at a uh, um, big old church out there. And then uh, I've been a uh, counselor for about eight years now. And... Um, but I love, let me tell you, this is what, this is my, uh, I have had a passion for this group, uh, for probably 11 years. And so it is always a real honor for me to come in and be with you. And I, from my perspective, you are in one of the most challenging chapters of life where you are trying to figure out what do you do? Who are you? What are you going to stand for? What is your life going to look like? Lots of questions. Today we're going to talk about organizations and how difficult it can be. Some of you are just starting out in your career. Some of you have been in there for a while. And you know what it's like when you start that process that, that, uh, of, of coming into an organization that's got its gears and they're grinding and it's got its way of doing things. And you come in and you kind of get fit in or some of you are starting an organization or some of you have been um, a part of an organization for a long time and you kind of know the culture. But organizations are tough. And this is where... For me, where I watch the world watch us and shake their heads and go, I'm not sure if I buy it, is how we operate as believers of Jesus Christ in the midst of an organization. A lot of who we are gets lost. It's easy to lose ourselves in an organization. It's easy to to lose our way and not know how do we blend who we are in this place that is has specific goals, specific drives, specific outcomes that they want. And so we are going to take a look at that tonight. There is nobody in the Bible that knows more about the difficulty of, uh, of dealing with organizations than Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, and if you've got a Bible, you can look at it in your pew Bible if you want, but I'm going to read to you. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. That's his job. 
And his descendants come from the city of Jerusalem before Jerusalem was wiped out. Jerusalem was this city, and around this city were, were these gigantic walls. And, and, and then and along, the dates get argued back and forth, but let's just say right around 600 to 500 B.C., they are destroyed. Persians come through. Uh, the, the, are, are, and completely wipe it out. What they, they did was they would take these people and instead of killing everybody, they would do what's called disperse them. They would take, they would take a small little remnant, leave them there, and then they would take pockets and plant them all the way around in different towns and cities. So you may never see your family members again for generations. You actually see Jeremiah talking into this when Jeremiah 29:11 when he says, you know, for the for I know the plans I have for you, plans to for, you know, this kind of this uh, or uh, um, I'm sorry, just misquoted. The uh, let me br- get my brain around it. But the um, but he's talking in there and he's saying, I haven't forgotten you. And he's saying he's saying into this dispersion, um, he goes, I'm still at work. Well, this is what Nehemiah is dealing with, this feeling of God's completely abandoned the city. His brothers come into town, and he hears about how um, uh, how hard it's been, and how all the walls have been taken out. Ezra's gone in there and tried to do some work. King Zerubbabel had gone in there and tried to rebuild it, and, and Nehemiah, who works right next to the king Artaxerxes, you're going to see this. He is the cupbearer, which is an incredibly high position. Um, and one that would take a lot of trust for the king. The king is always under threat of being overtaken or assassinated. And so the cupbearer, what his job was, was to be the one that would literally serve the king, lest the king have to actually lift his own cup. I mean, that's, you know, the life. And um, cup. And, and, and the other thing he had to do, which you don't want to do, is sometimes you'd have to take a drink of it to make sure there's no poison in it. And so that's his job. That's what he does. But to be the cupbearer, you basically have to be the one that the king says at the end of the day, implicitly, without question, I trust you. You are the one that I have got. He's literally putting his life in the hands of the cupbearer every single meal. So let me read to you. The word of Nehemiah... The son of Hakaliah. This is in uh, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read a little bit more than what you have. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I, Nehemiah, in Susa the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity... And about Jerusalem. So he's checking in. His brother still lives back there. His brother is part of the remnant. So he's asking, how's Jerusalem? What's happened down there? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear be now attentive, and thine eyes open to, the, to, to hear. And I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, the sons of the servants. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statues, nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses. By the way, this, this way of seeing, the way that he's seeing this, is that he's seeing that the people have walked away and that's why the town is destroyed. This is the beginning of the way the Pharisees are going to, the Pharisees are taking the same thing on. And so while they're not rebuilding walls, what they're trying to do is rebuild a people to be holy, 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 really, really holy. That's how they saw it. So we can oftentimes badmouth the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are taking the same idea and they're saying, if we can get right again, really right, maybe God will come back and restore us. Because at that time, Jerusalem falls again and it's, it's in the hands of Rome. So you can understand that this is a common theme that's going through this and, and you can see Nehemiah lamenting this. Remember the word, he says, which thou didst command, command um, thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, he's calling God out, saying, This is your word. This was your promise, God. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people, whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, literally I'm imploring you, with every fiber of my being. Some of you know what it's like to pray like that. Some of you know what it's like when you get down and you do a quiet time and you're doing it every day and it kind of starts to become rote. And then something happens in your life where suddenly it's no longer just a matter of saying words, but you are literally praying almost from the inside of your heart, trying to reach out and touch God and say, Lord, I really, really, really need you right now. The Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant. And the prayer of thy servant, servants who delight and revere thy name, and make thy servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Now, now he almost breaks out of this, this, this part of the story. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. Now listen, you're going to have a little bit of a different translation up there. That's the NIV. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Just a little bit of a, uh, just to let you know, you will see different translations that move anywhere from a more literal word-for-word-for-word translation to what's called a dynamic translation, where they're taking thought by thought by thought. And so you have sort of a spectrum. The message is all the way over on the dynamic. They're taking big, big thoughts, and he's trying to say this is the intent of each one of these passages. Over on the other side is the New American Standard, what I'm reading out for you. Literally, you can almost do your Hebrew homework if you're in seminary off of this translation. It's literally going word for word for word. So it's a little rough. I like it just because for me, it just is, it, the, the, the words surprise me a little bit more. So you'll see differences here. And that's where the translators were trying to work out what did they really mean. It came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him. You can see uh, uh, Nehemiah is doing his job. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king, like he would have done every day, every meal. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Kind of like typical guys. I mean, you can work alongside them forever and not know that they actually have emotions ever. So you can imagine... 
that in this job that Nehemiah has, this is especially important. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Where some of these organizational cultures, if you show emotion, you're considered what? I heard that word. Say it again. A wuss. Okay, I'm gonna, it wasn't a word I was going to use, but I'll take it. Exactly. What does that mean? Weak. Exactly. In this job, it's not only weak, but you are supposed to be, as the cupbearer, almost invisible. Like nobody would even notice that you're there. He's having, the king is having, the queen is sitting by his side, the king's there, the king's court is sitting there, they're all having their meal. You're almost supposed to be like the wallpaper. If you get noticed, you can get fired at best, and the king would have to go like that to have your life snuffed out. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart, says Nehemiah. And then I was very much afraid. You could imagine suddenly all eyes are on him. This has probably never happened in his life. You don't keep your job by drawing attention to yourself in the meal. Suddenly it's very, very tense. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. That would have been a common way of introducing any time you would dare to talk to the king. Why should my face not be sad when the cry, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, and you can see the amazement on Nehemiah's face, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, which is exactly what I would have done. And I said to the king, you can imagine him taking a gulp, catching his footing, looking him in the eye, dropping his shoulders. If it pleased the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The cupbearer has just asked one to leave his job, which is one of the most coveted jobs in the whole kingdom. You get there, you are lucky to get there, you are lucky to stay there. He has just asked to go back to a place that his army has destroyed and rebuild it using the king's resources, the king's men, the king's protection. And then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? I can almost imagine him just gulping and just not believing what he's hearing. And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. Nehemiah goes on. And if I were, listen, I would do a whole series on this because Nehemiah is one of the people that just has to work with an impossible organization. He has to work with the king's organization, and then there's all these people that are coming up under the king that are not for this project. They don't want it to happen. 
there's going to be this guy named Sanballat that's going to come in there and he's going to be trying to undermine every step. And some of you know what that's like, to feel like you're working every day and there's somebody who doesn't think what you're doing is what you should be doing and you feel that sense of being undermined all the time. Or you know what it's like in an organization to have somebody talking about you behind your back. To hear somebody come and say, well, so-and-so said something about you. They know what that's like. Nehemiah is going to go with that, and he's going to keep after this vision of his to rebuild these walls. Now, the walls were hugely significant. It's the only defense that you have. If you don't have walls around your city, you won't have a city. And so a, so a, so a city, in the, in, would, I mean, they're basically out there in the middle of nowhere. They would build these gigantic walls, and in these walls would be these gigantic gates. And so an army would come, and the only hope you have is that your walls are going to stand. When you don't have walls, your city is just a bunch of buildings. So when Nehemiah is saying, I want to rebuild the walls, what he's saying is, I want to bring this, this city where my, my father and your father, and my father's father, and my father's father are all buried. I want to bring this thing back and get it working again. He's going to go and he's not only going to take that pressure, he's actually going to go and start to, he's going to take a whole, a whole big bunch of the king's men and, and, and go down there and he's going to take this remnant. This group of people who've kind of just managed, they're no threat to anybody, so they just, and they're under the protection of this larger army, so they're just kind of living. They're used to it. Several generations have gone by. They're not used to being in a town that's, that, that has a name for itself. They only think of themselves as some sort of subsidiary of this, of this king, that they're just being able to, to live by his mercy. He's got to come down there and he's got to bring a vision of saying, we can be Jerusalem again. He has to re-educate them. He has to re-motivate them. He has to re-inspire them. You know how tough that is. Some of you have to do it every day. Some of you know what it's like to walk into your organization and you've got the vision. You can see it. And you've got to take a group of people that can't see it and try to give them a picture that they can see and that they want and that they have the ability and the training to see to completion. You know how hard that is. Nehemiah has to then re-educate all the people. He has to re-teach them how to be Jerusalem. It's not easy. There's different laws that they have. There's different customs that they have. And he's going to bring in all this stuff. He leaves for a while, goes back to the king to report after 12 years, stays there for a while, comes back. And everything's back in disarray again. Some of you know how hard it is. It's like every day you're just, you're just pushing this thing all the time and then you leave it for one second and it all starts to crumble again. Organizations are tough and they can tax you. Some of you know what it's like to start thinking in a battle mentality. It's almost like you versus the organization. Or you versus that person in the organization. That person hurt you and now... There's a war. That organization hurt you. Some of you have parents who worked their whole lives for an organization and the organization turned them out like they were nothing. Hugely hurtful. Hugely devastating to people and their, their sense of self. It is crucial as followers of Jesus Christ to learn how to be us there. Three things that I think Nehemiah had down pat. That you see starting to come out here. If you go home and you start and you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see this. The first thing that he had was that he valued wisdom. 
You watch him in this scene. Now imagine that it had been your hometown. Anybody here not from Seattle? <laughs> Where are you from? Let me hear some, th- some names and some towns. What? Los Angeles. Okay, what part? Where? Oh, I don't know where that is. Okay. Uh, where else? Tri-Cities. Tri-Cities. Okay. Mar- Mar- where? Maryland. Maryland. I've heard of that. Good. Yeah. All right. Where else? San Diego? Yeah. Where else? North Carolina. And we got the whole... Chattanooga. All right. My friend Dave Burke's out there in Chattanooga. Um... Did you go to the University of Ch- Chattanooga? Did you go to the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga? No. Okay. To, to Chattanooga State and All right. Okay. All right. Um, the uh, but you you can imagine what it would be like if you were here and you heard. I mean, you can think of all the tornadoes that have been happening, and you see these towns that are just literally wiped out. That's literally what an army would do. They would come in with such a massive amount of force and just bam hit this thing. Break it, but just destroy it. Literally take your will away. And then literally take enough of the people away that there's no strength left. And you can imagine what it would be like if in your hometown somebody exerted that kind of power over you. That kind of force. What kind of a drive it would be. Now you're talking to the guy who's holding the keys of that very pain. Now if it's me, I'm... Wisdom is the last thing that I'm going to be using. But you watch Nehemiah and over passion. Passion will get you off the ground. He exercises wisdom. which will keep you flying. Wisdom is for me, you guys. This is just me being real with you. The older I get, you guys, I watch people fuel their lives every day on passion. Passion conferences, you know, movies that exalt passion. If it doesn't have passion, it's not worth it. Passion is exalted. And don't get me wrong. I am a passionate person, for sure. Anybody who knows me knows that if I turn my eyes on something for me right now, you know, golf, I'm trying that. I'm terrible, terrible, terrible at it. Very terrible. But I, you know, I'll get passionate about it. I start going after it. That's for sure. But listen, The older I get, when I see an organization that is just fuel, fuel, fuel on passion, I start losing my trust. What I'm listening for is wisdom. When I'm going to work and I listen to people talking about points, and if I hear them talking about something complex, and I hear them mocking the other side as if they're crazy, I turn off the radio because it's not wisdom. For me, if there is complexity, wisdom has the ability to hold that there are different vantage points on the issue. When I hear somebody who is cherishing wisdom, and literally, that's how the Proverbs talk about it. They talk about it like it's gold, like it's something that's so valuable that you don't want to ever let it go, like it's a commodity. Seek wisdom, desire wisdom. Wisdom is the, for those of you who feel like in your organization you don't have a voice, anyone ever feel that way? I want to give you, this is a strategy 
I do a lot of work in my, my, in my work. I do um, work with, with families. I do work with couples. I do a lot of work with men. But I also work with companies where something's gone wrong in the team of decision makers. There's a rift. And so the team is now not functioning right. Anybody remember the three-legged race when you were a kid? Yeah? Remember when you... It's so sad, isn't it? You watch these kids, and you just see them tie their legs together and start running, and they're just, you know, ripping each other's legs off, and drag, one kid's getting dragged along, you know, and the other kid's just not willing to stop. It's just terrible. When you get that team where... Then there's that one team that just somehow seems to magically click, and they just run as if there's just the wind. They're just... They're, we run like there is... We are one. You know, that, that kind of thing. It's painful to watch a team when it's fracturing apart. And what I watch is I watch... Watch people that are not having a voice. When you don't get heard, it hurts. It just feels terrible when somebody is not listening to you. So what I watch people do to get their voice back is use passion. They speak passionately. And maybe not to the person that's actually the person they need to be talking to. They talk to somebody else, which is what? Gossip. But they're passionate. We should be doing it this way. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That, 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 that woman doesn't know what she's talking about. That person's such a this, such a that, such a that. Listen, I can do that. I've been in that place. When I was a pastor, one of the most painful things is they would split us up to go and have little small groups. And it used to just kill me. Because part of what they would do is just gripe about the leadership. This was in a church. And i got to be honest. Eventually, it just caught. I started doing it too. It's easy to start falling in the culture. It's almost like complaining and gossiping can almost be the way that you belong. It can almost be your ticket to be in the in crowd. And you use passion to try and be heard. Maybe if you can just be a little bit louder. Or you know what it's like to say it. Passion will make you say it just a little bit more extreme. The tip for you, and what you watch Nehemiah do over and over again, is in the midst of the storm, in the midst of this battle that's that's being waged around you, he said he keeps choosing a voice of wisdom. Wisdom holds the different perspectives and then charts a way down the middle that is probably at least a good answer. Does that make sense? Wisdom says... So listen, it has to get really practical, you guys. And so if I was coaching you, if I was a coach, like just off, off the, 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 you know, just on your shoulder, well, I would have you do, if you were going to take this, if you were one of those people that feel like you don't get heard, one of the strategies that you can use that Nehemiah uses all the time, you see Jesus do this with the woman caught in adultery. There's this war going on. There's the people that are, that, are, that are trying to convict Jesus. There's the people that are trying to convict this woman. This woman has been, had all of her power taken away. There's an extremely embarrassing situation for her, life-threatening situation for her. And you watch Jesus slow everything down. Let me tell you something. Wisdom, if you want to take that stance, if you feel like you haven't been heard, instead of getting louder, sometimes bringing your voice down, just like now, Right? Sometimes getting quieter gets everybody to stop talking. Wisdom has a tone. Sometimes it's a hard tone. 
But I want to challenge you and say, for those of you who don't know this yet, this is just me coaching you, is that if you want the voice of wisdom, you've got to learn how to bring your voice down into your chest. Some of you are going to talk like this, and I think it's wise if we spend our money on... And everybody's talking over you, right? You singers, you know what I'm talking about. You're getting it up in your head register, Right? Or some of you get that throat register going on. Well, I did the math. And analytically, I think the wise way to go. Suddenly no one's paying any attention. It is tough to ignore somebody when they feel grounded and when they're talking. So what I always challenge people to do is to try, if you're going to take the stance of wisdom, try thinking of yourself as soft but strong. Wisdom has a pace. One of the things in golf, that I'm going to be giving you some golf analogies for the next year or so, so just get ready to be bored, because it's the most <laughs> boring sport to tell other people who don't do it. I get that. Please know right now all of your mockery. I take it. I take it. I take it. One of the things that goes wrong, you're on the range, and, 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 and you can just hit shot after shot. Then you're on the course, and you're walking to your ball. Well, what guys will do is they'll start walking really fast which brings their heart rate up. When the heart rate goes up, all sorts of adrenaline gets kicked out. When, you're, when all the adrenaline gets kicked out, all of a sudden, you're tense. When you're tense, you typically shorten your arms up. When you shorten your arms up, you skin the top of the ball. So one of the big things that's tough, it's tough. you got your friends looking at you. This is competition. You're, you're under pressure. So learn how to slow down. Wisdom has a pace. One of the things for those of you who are going to start to work in an organization and stay yourself, one of the little tricks you can do is bring your voice into your chest. The second one is you can slow your walk. You've got to go from this office to that office and from that office to that office and head to this thing. This thing is really tough. If I have to go, what's your name? Anna. I have to go up to Anna and I have to hand Anna something like this and I have to get Anna's little thing like this and then, and then I have to go over and hand you and we'll go over here and talk to you and then I have to go over here and then I'm going to have the voice of wisdom. You get it? It's practical. Wisdom is practical. Slow your pace. If I walk over here and I keep my pace. Now listen, an organization, it gets moving. It's like a cyclone. It starts getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And it's easy to get sucked up into that. It's easy to start feeling like in order for me to survive, i got to swim as fast as everybody else's. We're all swimming as fast. And I'm going to try and talk to you about wisdom like this while I'm paddling. Wisdom sets its own pace. You watch Nehemiah when everybody gets all upset. You watch Nehemiah just keep going at his own pace. He just keeps walking at his own pace. People are losing sight and they're losing vision. He keeps going at his own pace. Wisdom slows down. Wisdom, when you're talking, it's important. I just winded myself swimming like that. (laughs) Go take a rest for a second. I'll be right back. Wisdom, say you know you're getting old, when you wind yourself in a talk. Just, I'm going to say, you're not there yet. One of these days you go, I remember that. I remember that. Um, wisdom is when you have people talking on different sides strategically. Wisdom will say something relevant about each side and then chart something in the middle. 
Listen, until you acknowledge somebody else makes sense and that they matter, stake two things in the ground. Until you've, imagine it's almost like baseball. I can't go to second base until I touch first base. And first base is everybody matters and everybody makes sense. And I'll tell you this, everybody's insecure about those two facts. No matter how your boss is carrying himself, no matter about how your boss is carrying yourself, everybody is insecure about those two things, who's in leadership. And when you are talking and you've got a different perspective, think about first base being, you matter and you make sense. I hear you. I can see, your, I can see that that would make sense. I can also hear, you matter and you make sense. I can also see some, 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 some value of this side. That would make sense. If I was in their shoes, I might see it this way too. My wisdom tells me, and I'll tell you, strategically use that word. It is a very, very powerful word. It is very hard to make fun of somebody when they say, my wisdom's telling me. My wisdom's telling me probably the way to go would be this. It's like Moses parting the waters. It's literally finding a way where there's no way. It's not the only truth. Wisdom doesn't clutch onto something as if it's got the only perspective. Wisdom just says, this is probably a way that in five years will probably stand up as being a good way. When you get people going, my way is the only way, wisdom's gone. Because that starts a battle. Does that make sense? Doesn't? No. All right. T talk to me. You never do. I think All right. Uh huh. All right. It's too narrow. Yeah. What would you What would you What would you propose? Remind us of your name. I'm Shannon. Shannon. That's fair. I love it, Shannon. And you know what? There's, there's, you are important. And I'll, I'll, let me tell you, for me, there's an, there's an element of what Shannon is saying that to me is absolutely, absolutely true is that sometimes I do think wisdom actually get, gets fast. Absolutely. Hey, listen, if my, if my dog is in front of an oncoming car, Wisdom is going to make me run out of that car. And if I'm walking slow and talking from my chest, I just lost my dog. So, yeah, I love it. I love it. What I would challenge you with is, and this is just a personal challenge, is that it's a, a tool to add to the other. It's a tool to add to the other. That at times, slowing it down and bringing your voice down. I would challenge you, Shannon, that actually you might find where you 
feel unheard in certain areas of your life, and I'm using you as a guinea pig right now because you volunteered, (laughs) I would challenge you and and anyone else not to lose who you are, but to add to who you are. It doesn't mean don't be you. It just means why limit yourself? Bring in sometimes, bringing in this other voice. Listen, anyone who knows me, I'm with you. I can get talking fast, I can get talking loud, and I'll, oh, let's go, da, 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 da. But it has been very powerful. In my men's group, I am in a men's group with 15 guys that are all leaders of ministry. What I used to try to get heard was to be the funniest, or to be the most insightful, or to be the most creative, or to be the loudest, or to be the fastest talker. And what I finally realized was that these guys will out charisma me every day. Some of you are using charisma and talent all the time. If you can be charismatic enough or talented enough or funny enough or, or critical enough. Some of you are using your critical voice. Anytime I hear someone who's critical all the time, I know they just want to be heard. And it's like they're tuning into one note and playing a song with one note in it. You know, ding, 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 ding. You're going to get the chance to rebut this for sure, Shem. What I'm challenging you is, you just got to have more notes in your song. You understand what I'm saying? There's, there's a chance. This is what I'm proposing to you is that what Nehemiah does is that he brings in something that I don't think our culture talks a lot about. It doesn't talk about wisdom. It doesn't hold wisdom up. It doesn't, it, it doesn't applaud wisdom. It applauds passion. The more passionate you are, the more airplay you get. And what I'm challenging you is, if you're going to lead in an organization, I'm going to challenge you that wisdom, however it ends up looking, I'm giving you one picture, but there's probably many. Wisdom is something that can start to get you heard because people crave wisdom. Does that make sense? Thanks for disagreeing. By the way, some of you who are brand new probably are going, what the heck just happened? But what I want to tell you something is, listen, I am way past having the only voice in the room. I'm just, that's not what I'm interested in anymore. I'm much more interested in you thinking critically and you walking out of here and going, that guy was full of baloney. But here's what I think, that's what I want, because that's discipleship. What I think Jesus did really, really well was raise people who could think really, really well. So I love it. Second thing is... That no matter what anybody says, feelings really, really matter. When I'm working with organizations and they're talking about this program that's not working, or they're talking about how this person is working more than this person's working, or they're talking about how they're not, it's usually expectations are out of whack. But I'll tell you what, that until I get the people to a place where they feel safe enough to be able to talk about how their feelings got hurt, and it really comes down to that. Listen, Think about how many times in your life you listen to somebody who's really upset and they will talk about what you did. They'll talk about what you didn't do. And they'll do anything they can to not say you hurt my feelings. But that's what happened. Feelings are fragile. No matter how high up the person is, I guarantee you that when they get the press report that's saying something negative, when they hear about the gossip, even if they say doesn't matter. I don't care. I guarantee you they do. I've just seen it over and over and over and over again. And what I do with these companies, you guys, it's just crazy. You get these people coming in and they're wearing shoes that are more expensive than my car. 
I'm like, where do you get shoes like that? Those are like jet shoes. Incredible shoes. And they're at an impossible place. That when they get anywhere close to a feeling, and I can name it for them, I would feel this. And they go, yes. It's like the ice melts. And suddenly all these possibilities of what they can do as a company kind of start coming up. There's always solutions, but not until someone's feelings are repaired. Our culture doesn't care about that. Turn on CNN and see how many of their pundits say, well, at the risk of hurting somebody's feelings, this is what I think. They just say it, and it's hurtful. It's spiteful. You guys, as followers of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you. Watch your words. Know that your words matter, that your words land, and that no matter what anyone tells you, no matter how highly accomplished your boss looks, that when your boss goes home at night and he saw the look in your eyes that says, I think you are completely incompetent, and you know you can do it, you know you can say a ton, that their feelings were hurt. And for those of you who feel like you're not getting the promotions that you want, for those of you who are feeling like you're not getting the salary you want, for those of you feeling like you're not getting heard, I want to challenge you. That's not the only way, not the only thing that's going on. But I want to challenge you. It's hard when there's a when there's a spiral going. It's like a dance. The manager didn't do something for you. Now you don't like the manager. So the way you look at them is in a way that hurts their feelings. And now you are not going to be the person that they're going to anymore, which makes you feel more hurt, more hurt, which makes you hurt. One of the things that you can do if you're going to work in an organization, and Nehemiah does this with his enemies, is that you can treat their feelings carefully. That when you talk to them, you can reflect, you know what, if I were in your shoes, I'd feel this. It's real subtle. I can always tell a speaker when they're, when they're talking and people are drifting off, it's because they haven't shared any of their own feelings. They haven't shared the feelings of the people they're talking about. Remember when I was talking about Nehemiah? Remember when he's sitting there with a cup and he's going to ask the, the question? Did you remember what I did? So I started bringing in, what would it feel like to be Nehemiah? And that question, suddenly the story becomes three-dimensional, doesn't it? You can see it. It's because his feelings somehow, somehow just appeared in the room. That's important. I don't miss that. When you are walking through your organization, it's easy to get sucked into mission statements. It's easy to get sucked into bottom lines. But don't forget that no matter what, Anybody says feelings are really, really important. If you are going to walk like Jesus Christ in the midst of your organization and not lose yourself, one of the little challenges that I have for you, before you walk through the doors, you can think of the doors as sort of like your go time. Lord, let me be considerate of the feelings of the people around me, even if they don't ask for it. doesn't mean you have to lose just to be, be people-pleasing all the time. I don't mean the other extreme. It just means, because some of you know what that's like. But I do mean that you're considering them and it comes out of your mouth when you're talking. Wisdom. Feelings. And the last one is that when you're in an organization, it is really easy to start thinking who's ever writing your paycheck is the one who owns you. And I want to tell you, 
that one of the things that Nehemiah, you see it right in the beginning when he starts praying, is that even though he works for the king, he knows that he does not belong to the king. He belongs to God. It doesn't matter who you are as much as it matters whose you are. And I have this picture of Jesus Christ when you are in heaven and sitting down with him. And he sees how much you are trying to prove yourself. And I know, listen, all compassion, huh? We all have that need to prove ourselves in some way. We're successful enough, or we're smart enough, or we're good enough at what we're trying to do. It's human. But listen, as someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, don't forget that Jesus is saying, you don't have to prove yourself to me. That's the whole point of the cross. That's why I came and did what I did. Don't you ever forget that. There's not one ounce of proving yourself to me that you ever need to do. You can't do one more good thing on this earth and make me love you any more than I do right now. I just love you. I love you in a way that you can't even understand. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As far as the east is from the west, as far as the mountains from the sea, or my ways from your ways, that's Isaiah prophesying about Jesus' love. It's easy to lose yourself. It's easy to start seeing the organization as the one who owns you, and Jesus is the one who helps you get what you want in the organization. Does that make sense? Jesus becomes a tool. It is a different kind of grounded power when you walk through an organization where you know that as far as it is up to you, you will pull with what you have in that organization to make it go but it doesn't own you. You don't belong to it. It doesn't have your identity in its hands, willing to give it back to you if you perform right, willing to give you a, a good uh, employee evaluation. It doesn't own you. When you can walk into your place and know that Jesus is the one who's got you, he's got that pink slip on you, then you're freed up to do your best but you're free and you're not a slave. Wisdom. I want to challenge you guys. Wisdom is a practice. It's not a talent. You can start. If you are known in your company as the fiery one, trade that identity in because it won't last. It burns out. If you are known as the confronter, I challenge you to trade it in. Because ultimately speaking, you'll be ignored. I challenge you, start practicing wisdom. What does it look like? What does it sit like? What does it stand like? What does it walk like? What does it speak like? Does it speak first in the meeting or does it wait? How does it talk to people? Feelings. Doesn't mean you got to be a slave to people's feelings, but when you walk into your organization and you remember every single person has got an insecurity, every single person here has been wounded, every single person here has got fear. And as far as it is up to me, I can see people as broken people who do well at their, what they do, or maybe who aren't doing that well. But when I get and check in with Jesus, I want to make sure I treated the least of these my brethren like he treated me. And then the last one, don't forget who's got you. It's not the person who's signing your paycheck.
Jesus, pray for these people. I pray for me. We're all trying. We're all doing what we can. It's hard to be in an organization and not lose yourself. It's hard to be in an organization and not feel the stress and swim with the tide, swim with the current of the organization. It's hard not to forget who's, who owns us. Lord, I pray for us as your followers that we would be people that walk, breathe, and follow you in the midst of the places we serve as work. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me say something before you guys play. pray. I want to honor Shannon again, and I want to tell you, I'm going to stick around. I really don't care if you agree with me. I really don't. What I, and anyone who knows me would say this is true. I really welcome your best critical thinking. And I want to tell you that is much more what I'm interested in as a disciple. And some of you are here for the first time, and you're just checking it out. Hey, listen, I want you to know that in this place, we don't ask you to turn your brain off to be a follower of Jesus. I want you to be able to use the best you got. So I'm sticking around, and if you're going to come up and you want to say, I don't agree with that at all, I love it. I love it. Bring it on. I invite you to have those conversations with each other because what I want you eventually doing is turning around and teaching this. I want you turning around in your organizations and being the person that can talk about these things with the brain and the heart that's thought through these things, that's lived them, that struggles with them. Fair enough? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.